Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I'm Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Rabbi Sherry Hirsch is a noted thinker, author, and Jewish spirituality expert as well as the global head of integrated wellness for Halil International. Rabbi Hirsch uses her years of experience in the pulpit and in the field to empower individuals to become more in tune with their well-being, way of life, and ability to impact the world. Valley Bateman Rush would like to thank Temple Kolami for hosting Rabbi Hirsch's lecture titled, Becoming a Mindful Soul in a Mind-Bending World. Please enjoy the program. I'm so honored to come back for a second time, and Phoenix has been so good to me. I'm very partial to Arizona because I've worked with Canyon Ranch for the last 15 years, and as my husband said, if he knew what being the spouse of a pulpit rabbi was like, he would have never married me, but if he knew that I was going to have a gig at Canyon Ranch, he would have married me 15 times over. (laughs) So I'm very partial to Arizona, and I love it here, and as I said, I just came from the Young Professionals Women's Retreat at Spirit of the Valley, is that? Did I? Spirit of the Desert. Um, and I was just with 30 women that were so dynamic and so exciting. And the news out now is that we don't have to worry so much that our millennials are becoming less Jewish. In fact, they're becoming more Jewish, is the recent studies. And from what I saw today, that was clearly what was indicated, and the enthusiasm and the excitement. So I'm delighted to be here, and I thank you for accommodating my schedule. I've got to go to New York. So um, what I wanted to do today is, as many of you know, if you leave here and you're like, that was a very good talk, then I will consider myself having failed. Because you can hear a good talk anywhere. In fact, you can just turn on your computer, listen to a TED Talk, and hear one of the best speakers in the world. But if you come away today saying, here's the one change I want to make in my life. Here's the one thing I want to do. And if you walk away with one thing, I say, but if the Jewish tradition says we live until we're 120, God willing, each of us. And as I said to the women today, everybody in the room was 25. So you're all 29. Let's give it just a few years. Um, we've got, if you make one change a year, you're talking 70 changes, 80 changes. That is a lot. And for all the things we say, we promise at New Year's resolutions at Rosh Hashanah, and in the New Year's, we say, we want to change this, we want to change that. And then six weeks into it, we've dropped them all. I say one, one at a time. And I've been working with a group of families for the last 20 years. We do one thing a year. And these families went from living no Jewish life to living very profound Jewish lives. And actually, one of them, their daughter, I just gave her her blessing at ordination at JTS. So I really talk about the power of one. So today, just take one thing home with you. And it may be that you really like the person sitting next to you, and that's great too, right? Just whatever you take home, take it home and let it transform you. 
So what I want to do today is I want to study a little bit. Some of you have studied traditional Jewish texts. I know Valley Beit Midrash is very focused on learning, which is really, for me, the center of how I speak to God. They say that when we pray, we speak to God. When we study, God speaks to us. And for me, that's the way that I really find God's presence and voice in the world. So we're going to study together. We're going to practice together. And then we'll put it all together. Sound good? Today's topic is being mindful in a mind-bending world. And I know we have people from Charlottesville here. I imagine we have some people from Vegas. I don't need to describe to you the state of affairs is mind-bending, right? Whatever your political philosophies, and I actually am a rabbi that subscribes to that rabbis should not be speaking politics from the pulpit. So you don't have to worry about that. You can put that, that defense back. It's that, in fact, it's just the world's a little crazy, right? And it probably was always a little crazy, but we didn't have the constant barrage of information, the constant awareness of what was going on everywhere because you knew your little town. And now we have access to the world in seconds. And because of it, it's actually mind-bending. Sometimes you're like, do we really live here? Do people really do that? Is this what really happens? And it's both on a very large level, but also on a very small level. I was in my very first car accident about a month and a half ago, and it was a hit and run. And he took off the back of the car, and these kids took off after him, identified who he was. A few hours later, it was an Israeli guy, drunk. He thought he'd killed us, which was horrific. That being said, the amount of people that stopped and helped us and supported us, and it was like mind-bending. I thought, what world am I living in? This world where this guy hits the car, drives off, then wants to make tshuva, wants to make an apology to me, and yet I have all these people calling and taking care of me, and these two 18-year-old boys racing after him, only to find out just this is the sweet part of the story. When they come back, all I kept thinking is, God, I hope they don't get out of the car. You know, you could take a gun in LA. You know, you could never, these two boys. They came back. They looked at me. They go, Rabbi Hirsch? I said, <laughs> I said, yes. And they're like, do we get extra points for this? They were my Hebrew school kids. So I said, you know what? You get extra points with God. But the point being is that it is a mind-bending world on both the macro level and the micro level. And the more we're inundated, the more we're sort of overwhelmed with it. Like there's days, I don't know for you, but there's days that I just want to pull up the covers and just say like, I'm shutting it down just because it's so much. There's just so much coming at us. And so what I want to do is I want to give us tools today from the Jewish tradition that really help us face a way of approaching all the crazies. Right, a way of saying, this world is very frenetic. This world is confusing. I don't have a lot of answers. I'm not sure how, why this happens, or where's God. I don't have all those tools at my fingertips. And I'm not sure I want to ask them every moment of my life. I don't want to walk into Whole, Whole Foods Market and be like, by the way, do you know where God was in Vegas? Right? I don't necessarily want to have those conversations all the time because they're exhausting. And so I want to give you some tools to help ground you back here so that you can really take in that which is beautiful. And what's beautiful is those two boys running after the guy. And what's beautiful is all the people that stopped. And what's beautiful is all the coming together of and the people that run in. Those are the moments. And you can't take them in if you're so inundated with the other ones. So with that, I'm going to ask you first 
to put your papers down. You can put it next to you. If there's something on your lap, take it off. If you're holding on to something, put it down, even the camera. Um, uncross your legs. Uncross your hands. As I've said before, we get very twisty. In a world that is mind-bending, we get very twisted. And physically, we demonstrate our twistedness. If you see, if you walk around, you see people like this, like this, like this, because we're expressing physically that barrage on us each day. So turn your hands up towards the heavens. Close your eyes from top to bottom and take a deep breath in. And exhale. Take another deep breath in and exhale. Take another deep breath in Finding a rhythm, lengthening your inhale and your exhale. I want you to begin to find stillness. As a thought or a feeling floats across your mind, notice it and let it go. If you see an image or another thought coming through and it's interrupting your efforts don't get frustrated. Just watch it. Head towards the stillness and towards the darkness. Find the quiet. Let the sound of your heart awaken the stillness. Sit in the silence. Take another deep breath in and exhale, letting that stillness linger with you for another moment. Take another deep breath in, and when you're ready, gently open your eyes. What you've just practiced is a 5,000-year-old tradition. Now, some of you are going to say, oh, Rabbi, that's like pop psychologist. This is meditation like I've seen it. Actually, what you've just practiced is what's called Yom Shitika, which is a practice in Judaism that was originally from the origins of the Kabbalist, which was Ezekiel, about 1,000 BCE. <coughs> and later was developed in 135 CE by Shimon Bar Yochai. You may have heard a very famous story about him. I'm sure Rabbi Shmuley's told you he was being persecuted by the Romans. He went into a cave for 12 years. He lived off this fountain and carob tree out front, and he came out after 12 years, commented and criticized the people, and God said, go back in, you've learned nothing. And then 12 years later, he came back out, and he was able to see the people for who they were. And he wrote his greatest work, which is called the Zohar, which is the pivotal work of Kabbalist Judaism. Not the Madonna Judaism that you think you know that's made popular, but Kabbalist Judaism, which is the origins of what are these practices that take us to the deepest, most inner places of ourselves. Because for him, 
living under Roman rule was also mind-bending. And they were killing Jews because they were scholars, they were killing Jews because they were merchants. And so while we think our life is so different from theirs, it was truly mind-bending for them. And so the fact that he, a Jew, a prominent Jew, who lived well in luxury, would actually retreat to a cave, or even if it's metaphorical, even if the story isn't so accurate, but would retreat and isolate himself from other people and other Jews, indicates how painful he was just existing in the world. And what he said was, you need a yom shitika. You need a day of silence. So in modern language, that's called unplugging, right? That is actually unplugging. And what everybody says is, obviously, Rabbi, Shabbat is a yom shitika, right? It's the day you unplug. And now they have the sleeping bags for your phones. Have you guys seen these on Reboot? You take your phone, and it goes in a little sleeping bag. And you pull the sleeping bag tight. And 25 hours later, you take it out. But this idea of taking 25 hours, realistically, not everybody can do that. And Shimon Bar Yochai understood that most people are not going to go into a cave and retreat and withdraw for the next 12 years. So he suggested, take a moment of quiet. So take a moment of stillness. So what that means for us today is 90 seconds will change your life. People think that you have to have quiet for 10 minutes for, to really make a difference. Scientists have shown that it's 90 seconds. Three minutes is optimal. 10 minutes is magnificent. But if I told each of you to take quiet for 10 minutes each day, you wouldn't do it. But if I say, while well, you're waiting at the doctor's office, and they're like, oh, by the way, we're running 15 minutes late, which really means we're running 45 minutes late. <laughs> if I say to you, during that, take your phone, put it on the timer for three minutes, and just find quiet. Because the instinct in our mind-bending world today is the minute we're alone to grab the phone, the minute we're alone to pick up social media, the minute we're alone to turn on the TV. And to begin to notice, when you wake up in the morning, what's the first thing you look at? The phone. And when you go into the bathroom or you, or you go into the kitchen, what's the first thing you turn on? The TV. Right? You're listening to the Today Show. I'm a big fan of the Today Show. I was on the Today Show a lot. No criticism to the Today Show. But that being said, there's this need to have this background noise. And what he understood from his world is the same thing we need to understand in our world, is how do I find moments of true stillness and quiet? And who can I be totally still with? Because that's hard, too. There's not a lot of people that are like, Oh, just hang out, and we'll just be quiet together. But to actually find that place. So the first tool I'm going to tell you about today is if you look on your text sheet, we're going to go through the text. So it says, step one, Tzom Sitika, which is called a fast of silence. The medieval Kabbalists introduced what they called a Tzom Sitika, a fast of silence. We ordinarily think of a fast as a time of abstaining from food, like we do on Yom Kippur. In Tzom Sutika, people refrain not from eating, but from speaking. So here, I started to talk about stillness and taking in three minutes of stillness. But the extraction of that is to shut down our mouths, to take three minutes to not talk. And when I talk a lot about Yom Kippur, people have used Yom Kippur as the day to determine whether they're good Jews or bad Jews. Did you fast? Did you fast? Did you fast? As if that's some measure of Judaism. What I say to people on Yom Kippur is fast from something, fast from judgment, fast from speaking, fast from criticizing, fast from self-loathing, 
fast from something, and that's what this Kabbalist was saying, is take a fast where you give yourself still quiet. We're going to go back. Don't Just keep that in the back of your mind because we're going to go back and we're going to figure out how they actually play out in our lives. Good. So let's do the second one. Step two to becoming mindful in this crazy world is King Solomon wrote, as the waters reflect the face that peers into them, so does the heart reflect the heart. So as the waters, he's looking into a pond or into a body of water, reflect the face like a mirror, so does the heart reflect the heart, right? The heart is a reflection of itself. And so this is the commentary on it. Waters only reflect the face when they are clear and transparent. So if the water is murky, you can't see the reflection. When they are murky, they don't reflect at all. The same is true of us. When we become transparent, free of ourselves, our interlocutor feels completely at home in our presence. They look into our face and see a reflection of themselves. They find empathy and understanding nearly as if they see themselves staring back at them. In other words, active listening means to turn yourself into a mirror. So the second step is called active listening, and I'm sure the therapists in the room know exactly what I'm talking about, but I'm taking it from a tradition that's ours. I'm not taking it from the latest 20th century psychology, which I really believe in because it was highly influenced by Jewish scholars, but I'm looking back. So tell me a little bit about this text. What's it say? Right, and how do you get present? By focusing and... Okay, but look closely at the text. Go ahead. Tell me your name, Ella. Randy. Randy. Nice to see you. Um, by listening and not thinking of what you're going to say. Good. Okay, so now we're taking it a little bit further. What does it mean to be transparent? What does the waters mean to be clear within yourself? What does that mean? Um, Go ahead. Tell me your name and then I'll... Beautiful. So you have to be still. Beautiful. So there's a method to also my order. We'll get to that in a second. But the idea that if the waters are moving, if the waters are agitated, you also can't see the reflection, right? It's a blurred reflection. Go ahead. Tell me your name. And I'll come to you. Uh, Mike, that as the words come in, you're simply accepting the words. You're not immediately thinking, well, well I don't like that word, or responding. You're kind of just thinking of sort Right? So it's, it's not about, oh, I'm listening so that I can talk, or as we said earlier today, I'm waiting to speak, right? When someone's talking to me, I'm just waiting. I'm not really listening. But actually, you're just taking it in and letting it be a reflection on you. Go ahead. Tell me your name one more time. Howard. Howard. I took to be you clear your mind of your thoughts, and their thoughts become yours. Oh, beautiful. So this other way is like, wait, you totally strip yourself. You become still, and you eradicate your thoughts so that you can really let their thoughts internalize, as opposed to trying to synchronize them with your life. Let me tell you, let me think. But somehow you become a tabula rasa, and so that their thoughts can be really shared with you in a way that you're not with agenda. Good? What else? So then it says, but when they're murky, what does it mean to be murky? So once we have is agitated, when the waters are agitated, then we're agitated. What else does it mean to be murky? Filled with negative 
Great, so filled with negative thought, filled with criticism, thinking of things you want to say back to them, telling them why they're not speaking correctly, good. And also in our own selves, when our own life is murky, we don't talk to ourselves very kindly, right? Go ahead, tell me your name. I'll get the names, I promise. To me, transparent means being honest with yourself. Hmm. Did you hear that? So being transparent means being honest with yourself, which we all, if I asked you right now and said, are you honest with yourself? Everybody would say yes. But the truth is, like, today I had a lot of Reese's Pieces. Now, I'd like to say, oh, I just had a handful, but I had like three handfuls and maybe more. So the truth is, how honest are we and to what degree do we rationalize just to make ourselves feel okay? Right, so being transparent is saying like, I did have three plus handfuls of Reese's Pieces today. That's a lot, right? But to be honest with that means to actually accept it, right? Good, what else does transparent or murky mean? Let's look, they look into our face and see a reflection of themselves. They find empathy and understanding nearly as if they see themselves staring back at them. So what does that mean? In other words, you turn yourself into a mirror. So how do you feel when you look at a mirror? Well, sometimes you feel good. Right? Yeah, I look pretty good today. Or, you know, my hair's not quite right. But other days, other days you look in the mirror and you're like not happy with yourself. So beautiful. Tell me your name. Mark. Mark. So sometimes you look in the mirror and you're like, I'm good to go. I'm, I'm rocking it. And some days you look in the mirror and you're like, what is wrong? What, what's going on here, right? Because that's the murky, and that's an indicator of the kind of availability you are to another person. Could someone have another hand? Joe. Well, looking into a mirror is an inverse reflection of yourself. Good. So what does that tell us about ourselves? I'm, I'm going to ask you that. Oh, I was going to ask you that. <laughs> that's, that's where I get the lucky position. I get to ask you. It's, it, it, it's an inverse uh, reflection. Left is right and right is left. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it makes you think, should make you think. In my case, it says uh, you look old. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't know. I really couldn't interpret that. But I do know it's an inverse reflection. Did anybody else have an interpretation of what an inverse reflection of yourself means? Yes, tell me your name. Uh, Beth, it was an inverse reflection of what the person is saying is how I interpret hmm. it. And when they're talking of their pain, you should feel their pain with them, share it with them. They're talking about their joy, you should share that with them too. And so be a reflection of how they're feeling. But not exact reflection, but an inverse reflection, right? An ability to take it in without sort of altering it through your eyes and making it try to be the same. Mm-hmm. Go ahead in the back. And you're not taking the murky in you and adding it to them. You know, Uh, Some of you may know this, but Judaism was a response to Hellenistic culture, Greek culture. The Greeks were a visual people. They were all about what you see. 
And so the body was very important, and the outside was very important, and the visual was very important. And Judaism was a response to that. And what did we become? We became a hearing audio culture. So what's the central pair of Judaism? Shema. Hear, O Israel. Listen, Israel. There's a million ways to translate it. But at the center of who we are is about listening. Right? And one of the central tenets of what we do, what is the oral tradition of Judaism? It was 400 years of passing down stories. And what do you do? What is your mandate as a Jew to tell your grandchildren? The stories, to let them be a link in the chain. Right? We don't show them images. We tell them. And we ask them to tell their stories. Right? We're a people of stories and of listening. And so the second tool I want to teach you today is how to take your Judaism and make it an extraordinary listening tool. How to become the kind of listener that the liturgist, meaning the person that writes prayers, when he wrote the Shema, that's the kind of Jew he was making. One that wasn't focused on the visual and the image, but one that was focused on the hearing of another human being. Right? Because to see another human being, there's a lot of layers we have to go through in order to see them for who they really are. And we have to put a lot aside, a lot of pre-notions and considerations. But to hear someone, you just hear them. Right? And so here's what they say. So the first is you suspend judgment. So the first thing you have to do is to remove your murky, you take out judgment which is really hard because, again, if I asked everybody in the room, are you a judgmental person? Everybody would be like, no, I'm not a very judgmental person. We judge left and right, everyone and everything. It's the nature of who we are, right? And so the becoming conscious of when am I judging? And when I'm sitting here with another human being, can I truly listen to them? Can I hear what they're saying by setting aside my judgment, essentially pulling out the murky within me? The second is leaning in. That's become the big Sandberg phrase, but I don't mean leaning in the way in women in the workforce, but listening and looking like you're very interested. Do you know that feeling when someone you're talking and someone looks very disinterested, how painful that is? And sometimes we become interested, even if we weren't initially interested, just by leaning in. You let people speak their mind, they communicate, they don't feel judged. One of the questions I always say is, when you listen, or when you're talking, how much are you defending your argument? Because if you're really being heard, you don't need to qualify or defend. And I have to cite out the women in the room. Women much more frequently apologize, qualify, and defend what they're saying much more than men. It's been studied. A woman will be like, I'm sorry for saying this. It's not very smart. I'm not sure this is a good question. They have a million qualifications in order to prepare you in case you don't want to listen. But I want you to make the assumption that the person that's listening has the gift of hearing, the gift of being a Jew. And by sitting there listening to you, they have the opportunity to really hear what you're saying. Allow the, oh, so then we talked about this a lot today, which was this is a practice to listen. It's a true practice. And what I tell people is if you practice for three minutes a day of listening, active listening, you would become the kind of person that hears the Shema totally differently. So here's what we're going to do. The person sitting next to you is probably the person you came with. So now it's going to take a little bit. You're going to turn 
behind, like this group is going to turn towards each other and this group is going to turn towards each other. And you guys are going to turn. So turn your chairs. Yep, this is going to take some moving. So find a partner, a Havruta, that you're going to listen to and vice versa for, I promise you, only three minutes. You're going to find a partner. So take a moment, and I always, this is always dangerous in a group of Jews, but take a moment to introduce yourselves and what area you live in, but just a moment. So just take a moment. Okay, that was the moment. That was the moment. So I'm going to be a little bit, I'm going to be a little bit uh, which means a little bit careful with the time. One of you is going to choose to go first, okay? And I'm going to ask you, you have three minutes, and this is the prompt. You're going to tell the other person about your mother's mother, okay? Everyone's looking at me like, ah. Oh. You're going to tell the other person about your mother's mother. That would be your maternal grandmother, another way of saying it. But in the South, they say your mother's mother. And what I want you to do, first of all, you need to be facing one another so your knees are facing towards each other. I just noticed some people aren't. So make sure you're totally facing one another. I'm going to turn you. You're half, you are half facing. I'm going to use my model here. Is Wayne? Mark. Oh, Mark. Mark, I'm going to use the guys. See how they're, they're knee to knee, face to face? So if you're half facing, it's really important to notice your body. What, look? OK, hold on. We'll get there. So um, if, you, if you don't know your mother's mother, then talk about that and what that feels like, OK? So you're going to have three minutes. One person's going to go first. I want to remind you, first of all, you're a mirror. So the first thing you want to do is you want to be actively listening, which means that you're not waiting to talk. You're not thinking about what you're going to respond. And in fact, here's the good news. You don't have to say anything. In fact, I want you to have as little facial responses as possible. Right? Or, or there's a very big difference between the drama that we show when we're listening. Because when you have too much drama, you rob the other person of actually being able to talk. Because what are they doing? I've got to comfort you. I've got to make sure you're OK because you're overly dramatic. Right? You're amplifying. And so I've got to now change what I'm saying because you look too scared. Or you look too upset. Or you look too happy. I've got to alter. So I am now no longer thinking about what I'm saying. I'm thinking about taking care of you. So keep the reactions to a minimum, but to really listen to the other person. Okay. So you have three minutes. I'm going to time you. Pick who's going to go first. The third tool I want to give you, and to be honest, I have three more tools, and I have about 10 more minutes, which was not my plan, but that one took a little bit longer than I planned. So what I was going to say is I'm going to give you the tools, and then we'll talk about what you do with them. But we're, I was hoping to practice each one of them. But we're going to do the best we can. So the third one is called Heat Bodhidut, which is the actual practice of meditation. People think that meditation is a Eastern Buddhist type practice. It's actually a very long history and long roots in Judaism. And actually, people think that um, 
we did it, we stole meditation from the Eastern face. It's actually not the case. <laughs> Rabbi Nachman of Braslav, who was the grandson of the Baal Shem Tov, he used to go into periods of silent reflection and he would do what's called internal and external meditation. Internal was, wet, ex, internal was what we did at the beginning where you just sort of cleared your mind. Externals when you focused on a Shabbat candle. And what they used to do is they used to do Hitbot Adut, this type of meditation, an hour before they started to pray in the morning. So they would come an hour before and they would sit in meditation, either externally focusing on something, a ritual, a candle, something in their life that animated their life, or they would do internal, which would be to clear their mind as a way that they could truly speak to God, right? And so the thing with Heat Butter Dude, and I just want to read you this text so that you see it's not just something. This is from Alan Moranis, who is one of the modern teachers of Musar, which is a popular movement that developed at the same time as Kabbalah. It was in response to if we do all these practices, but we aren't actually ethical people, it's kind of empty. So Musar is the development of the ethical behavior to align with the practical behavior of Judaism, right? And we've all read those headlines where, you know, with the payas and the hat and the rabbi on the front page of the New York Times stealing and this and that, when it's like horrifying to us. We're like, oh my God, they're Jewish, right? So the Musarians struggled with that same sort of conflict in the 14th century. Right? They struggled with the exact same thing. So when I talk about the mind-bending world being our world, I want to remind you it was their world too. It was as crazy then as it is now. They used to have tremendous problems with people very, quote, acting externally very religious but behaving very inappropriately sexually especially. And in the orthodox, real, not orthodox, I don't like to use that word, but in the right wing from community, do you know what the biggest problem they're having in the community is not sexual impropriety, you know what the biggest problem they're having in their youth? Heroin addiction. Yes, that is their number one problem. And if you read about it, it's fascinating. So there's this intense need to realize that the world that is mind-bending was not just this world. It's the world that we've been living in for 5,000 years, and our people have been trying to find the ways to rectify it. And so heat go to do it is a practice of meditation. I just want to read you this from Alan Moranis. When are you living? Tell me. Meaning, when are you feeling truly alive? You live when you have those rare moments of quiet. It is important to be able to be silent. It's important to let thoughts go in because when you are quiet, a lot of things that will come into your mind will come not from your mind, but min hashamayim, from the heavens. You grow from that. You become a different person from that. So what he teaches that he took from the Musar movement was when you meditate, what you do is you have an opportunity to hear the words of God, and they actually interrupt all the busyness and all the words of your own life, all the chaos that's drumming up in your head when you meditate. And again, what I say is 90 seconds a day, 90 seconds, very doable. I even say three minutes once a week. If you do it three minutes once a week, there's a great um, app called Headspace. Wonderful app. It teaches you actually how to meditate. The first thing I think is five minutes, if not less. So we're going to keep going. The step four is called heat palalut. So I, AKA, call this um, praying for a parking space. Now, I want to read you the text first. It says, you must pour out your thoughts and troubles to God like a child complaining and pestering to his father. So just hearing that statement, how do you think? What does that feel like? 
It feels like whining, right? You, you would think that the text is going to say, when you talk to God, talk with love and praise and tell God how lucky you are. But this is no, actually, when you talk to God, and by the way, this is Rabbi Nachman of Braslav. You can see the dating is the 1800s. Pour out your thoughts like you're a whiny child. Go ahead. Yeah. Why did I get here? What is going on? What is going on with this world? Why is this man from Vegas so nuts, right? So you must pray for everything. And this is how I developed what I call my philosophy of praying for a parking space. Because LA is very stressful. <laughs> and driving is incredibly stressful. And I have a whole philosophy on praying for a parking space. And it works. And I shared this story earlier. Forgive me, Samantha. But the other day, we were in Westwood. It was night. It's so hectic. It's Every week, the last four weeks have been holidays. I'm rushing, and I've got my teenage daughter in the car, another teenage friend, and I've got my other daughter who's on the cusp of teenagehood. I've got four kids. And I'm so stressed, and I say to them, everybody, pray for a parking space. And of course, the 13-year-old rolls her eyes and is like, seriously? Then the one, the other one that's mine, um, says, really, you have to go rabbi on us? Like, <laughs> they, they call it rabbi rogue. They call it rabbi rogue. And then the other one, Praise for a parking space. She's like, I can see her in the back, like, may we find a parking space? Whatever. <laughs> I kid you not, two seconds later, there's a parking space in the middle of Westwood, which is impossible. Okay? And I turned to my kids and I was like, like I said, pour out your heart to God and things might just happen. And of course, my two girls are like, ugh. And it was reinforced by God, right? But the point being is this idea is that we somehow believe that we pray in certain spaces only. We go to synagogue to pray, and we read these words, and then we're done praying. This is the opposite of that. Those, that formula in that prayer book, whether it's the Maksur during the high holidays or the Sidor during the weekly prayers, was only meant to be a springboard. It was not meant to be a destination. The goal is not to get through the words one by one. It's not to figure out, oh my god, people are sitting, I'm standing, maybe I should be sitting when they should be standing. How long should I stand before the rabbi says, when you're done, right? That's not the conversation we need to be having because that makes us murky. The conversation we need to be having is actually, I'm pouring out my troubles to you as if I were a child. I can't find a parking space. God, help me. The hog is coming. Get me a parking space so I can just pick up the bagels. Right? That's the kind of prayer that God wants. Go ahead. So does it matter when we pray if we do it non-verbally so the tradition says, A, that you have to pray in a language of which you understand. So I love when people say, I don't speak a lick of Hebrew, and then they're sitting there in synagogue for nine hours on Yom Kippur, and they're like, oh my God, it was such a hard day. I prayed all day. And I'm thinking, great, but what were you praying? Right? Because if you were just following along the book and you don't speak a lick of Hebrew, it's kind of hard. You have to pray in a language you understand. Whether you pray out loud or Quietly, there's a lot of discussion about that. Sometimes you have to have the murmuring of your lips to show that your body, you have to move your body in order to move your soul. And if you recognize from the Shiva world, this is called shuckling. It was a way to move your body in order to move your soul. But that being said, you know, I pray to God in the shower, in the car. All those places are really good because honestly, not usually is someone in those places unless you're driving carpool, and I'll leave the other up to your imagination. Go ahead, love. <laughs> for me, uh, the complaining and whatever only created for me a, a, a relationship I have with God, because whether he answers me or he doesn't answer, you always think he answers me. I had this relationship, so it worked. Beautiful. And I was going to say, to really have a relationship with someone, you're not like, excuse me, Mark, you're being my sample today, okay. or what they call Dugma, my model. 
is, you're so great, you're so great, you're so great. If you spent a lifetime with another person and all you said to them for the last 25 years is you're so great, guess what? It's, the relationship is about this deep. But if you say to them, this upsets me, this angers me, I'm happy when you do this, I feel gratified, I'm curious. All the things that we relate to another human being is the way we relate to God. And I just want to fit. So it says, if your garment is torn and must be replaced, pray to God for a new one. Make it a habit to pray for all your needs. I'm sorry for the typo. Large or small, and especially for fundamentals. That God should help you attach yourself to him. And again, him, God has no genitalia, so I don't worry about that. You can meditate in thought, but the most important thing, this, is to express your thoughts in speech. So here it says it in speech, but that was the Hasidic way. That's not throughout the tradition. So what I say to people is to pray for a parking space. Right, the next step in this mind-bending world is to sit in your shower and say, how could this happen? Cry with me. I feel sad. Like, did you do this? Are you evil or is this something else? Why did you give us free will? All those questions, you can pour out your soul and you can talk. That is prayer, right? And that is the practice of being in a crazy world. Go ahead. So you say we should pray for a parking does that mean if we don't find a parking place, we should take that as a sign from God? So, <laughs> so, well, you know, there's a lot of different responses to that. Like, I can give you an hour's worth of responses. You could say, like, the answer was no, or this, there's no parking space. It's not that God directly engages in our world, right? We have free will. I don't believe that God, when I say pray for a parking space, I'm not literally saying it literally I'm not saying that God is like and I split these two cars and la Siri your space was there right it's not that there's a God acting in my world in that way but it's putting my intention in the right place it's becoming transparent it's saying you know what instead of driving around like a crazy person slow down think about what I need what I want and be open to it because sometimes we drive right past a parking space Right, because we're too busy or we don't like the other person, how they park, whatever. It's not the literal, but it's the idea of putting our minds into having a real relationship with God. But the step is really um, combining two opposite things. Okay. Because um, pouring out your troubles is very different from asking for what you want. So I would argue they're all part of having a relationship. Pouring out your troubles, asking for what you want, telling the person you are blessed to be with them, gratitude, all those things are part of having a complete and healthy relationship. Yes, but if there's always pouring out, pouring out, pouring out without the help me to do this or help me to find that, then the pouring out piece becomes... So what I would say to that, just because we're time, and is that it's not binary. It's not, this is a relationship only that I pour out, and this is a relationship. It's the idea that I actually have a whole multitude of feelings in this relationship, and I don't relegate them to, now I'm in a synagogue, now I should say high, important prayers of, you're so great, you're so great, and not be able to say the other, okay? Last one. This is my favorite. A child speaks in the marketplace the way he heard his parents speaking at home. Okay, this is from the Talmud, from the oral tradition. However, in practice, we sometimes try to build into our children and students behavioral routines that personally we have not mastered. We insist that our children get proper sleep even though we scrape by on far less than we need. We insist that they eat properly even though we survive on coffee and donuts and Reese's Pieces. <laughs> we insist that they control their anger even though we sometimes show rage. In short, we find it easier to work on our children than on ourselves. 
This last one, the tool that I say, and this is going to be a little bit surprising to some of you, is I think everyone in their life needs an executive committee, an executive board. It is three to seven people who can give you honest, true feedback about who you are. And I hear this all the time because as the older we get, we think, I got it in the bag. I don't need to make improvements. The older we get, the more important it is that we have a group of what I call your executive board of directors. People that can say to you, you know what, you're telling your grandchildren to go to sleep, but you're going to bed at 4 in the morning. You're saying this, but you're doing this. To people that really call you on your things. And it's so hard to pick a board of directors. And in Judaism, what they have, it also comes from the Musar movement, they have what's called a vad. A vad is a group of people that see you for who you are, and you're able to hear their criticism with love. Right? So they can say to you, this is not OK behavior. And what I often say, I just had this experience. It was very interesting. My, my son was talking, uh, it's too complicated to explain, but the point being is that this other doctor hasn't had any checks on him in so long that he's become accustomed to behaving poorly, and yet it's become acceptable. Because he has no checks on him to say, this is my VOD and your behavior is no longer acceptable. You may be a good doctor, but times have changed and you need to change your behavior. right? And so it's really important to pick three to seven people that serve as your VOD. And the reason why, hold on one second, the reason why that's so important in a mind-bending world is because sometimes in this world, we become far harder on ourselves and far meaner to ourselves than we would be to a stranger. And sometimes we need that vod to say to us, not, you're not doing this right, but you're taking this too seriously. You got to laugh more. You got to love more. You got to realize that there is pain in the world, but there's also a lot of joy. And so you need that vod to remind you of what is painful. And the more painful the world gets, sometimes the more we need that vod to be the voice of reason. And so we see ourselves as part of the solution rather than part of the problem. Go ahead, a couple comments, and then we're going to close. Go ahead. And you have to be um, very open to hearing what. So as you've noticed, thank you for saying that, as you notice, there is a method to the madness in terms of the order. You can't do the VOD unless you practice the previous four. And you can't learn to really be able to surround yourself with people that can give you honest feedback unless you really know how to listen without being defensive and without feeling judged, right? And there's a method to this. Go ahead. Can't your boss just be your family? No. <laughs> um, so I'll tell you why. What does your family want from you? They want me to be happy. Of course they do. And what happens when you're unhappy? They're not happy. They're not happy, and they're trying to fix it and make you happy because it's uncomfortable to see you not happy. The worst thing in life is to see the people you love in pain. So when you make your VOD your family, guess what they're doing? You say, I'm grieving. They say, you're over it now. Come on, get through this. Come on, you're ready, right? Because what's painful for them is watching you suffer. And so when you pick a VOD that your family, they can be truth tellers, but they're not the people that actually can see you in your pain and can give you, and there's also an agenda in your family. And if anybody thinks that love is not conditional in family, Let's look at the Jewish tradition. Just look at the Bible. God's love for us was totally conditional, right? It, there is conditions and there is agenda. So it's important to pick people in your VOD that are not part of that. There was a hand over here. 
I think that what happens with people as they get older is they say to themselves, at this stage of my life, <laughs> what, what, who, who do I have to impress? impress? And, and therefore, as a result of that, they don't change uh, because they accept that. Uh, we see that day to day politically, but that's besides the point. We don't want to get there, I know that. But it's basic. If you reach a level uh, of social acceptance, a, a level of financial acceptance, or whatever it is, you say to yourself, who do I have to prove? So here's what I would answer to that. I hear a lot of seniors say that. Mm -hmm. And the seniors that I see the happiest, oh, I'm sorry, the question is, Sometimes you get to a stage in your life and you're mature enough, you've matured enough, you're like, you know what, who do I need to impress? I don't need to change, I am who I am and this is it. And there's a level that's beautiful and that's self-acceptance. Except, I work with a lot of seniors. The happiest seniors that I know are the ones that are assuming they've got another 150 years to live and are changing with the same dynamo that they were changing when they were 25. They're learning, they're studying, they're out and about, they're, and so, and my favorite example, and I have to say it because you guys are Arizonians, but Mel Zuckerman is 90. He's the founder of Canyon Ranch. They gave him, and this is public knowledge, an 18-month non-compete clause because they were like, he's going to die. He's 90 years old. So the competition, the company that bought his company, was like 18 months. What is he going to do in 18 months? 18 months is just about enough time for him to build his new venture, which is going to be a multi-billion dollar adventure. Turns out he's going to be 91. To him, that is actually 31. And when I see that kind of effort, if you think you're too old for changing, you've got to change your attitude. And you need a VOD to say to you, actually, that's actually not how you find joy. Because we were meant to grow, and we're meant to grow until we die. We're not meant to grow until a certain age. So Avad, I can teach you more about it. I wish I had more time today, but I want to do a couple things with you just so we close and I'm thoughtful about time. First of all, as you can see, I gave you a lot of tools today. You have a worksheet in front of you. What you're going to do is you're going to take a few minutes, five at the most, and you're going to look at this worksheet and you're going to say, and the more detailed you are, the better. What will be my schedule for unplugging? Now, people are going to say something like Shabbat. They're going to say, oh, Fridays. Right? I want you to be as detailed as possible. We are a very litigious world now. We need a lot of details. So that means Friday morning from 8 to 9, I will not turn on any media of any sort, and I will not answer the phone. Right? And if it's one hour, if it's 15 minutes, but I want you to be as detailed as possible. The second one, when will, who will I practice active listening with? Right? I want you to say there's going to be one person that every time I'm going to put on my timer for three minutes and I'm going to active listen to them. I always pick my friend Stacy because she's always got a big story and I can just sit and listen. Right? And always I learn something from it. The minute I'm not talking, I learned so much from her, and we've been friends since we were 10 years old. So I, she always says, are we going to run out of things to say? And I said, turns out we don't. You know? <laughs> Inner directed silence. What will be my schedule for meditation? 90 seconds. 90 seconds. But pick the day and the time. It can be a walking meditation. 
personal prayers, where are places that I can pray for 90 seconds? Again, I said 90 seconds is the sweet spot. That's what all neuroscience has shown. 90 seconds is the moment that there's the click over. So where are places that I'm not currently praying that I can pray? And as I mentioned, shower is good, car is good. Right before you go to bed, you will sleep a thousand times better. If you just say at the end of the night, thank you for getting me through this day, tomorrow, may I wake up in the morning rested and calm. Just that, you will sleep like a different person. And then the last is the VOD, is can I find three people that can be my truth tellers that I can really hear? And it may take practice of the others in order to get to the last one. The reason I gave you all these tools is because when you live with real action, all the chaos and noise and disturbance that's going on in the world, you become a channel for calm. And you can't imagine how much that affects other people. When you sit and really listen to someone, when your body's really quiet, when you have real peace, you can see the entire room calm down with you. And what I often say to people, there's people that come into the room and they suck out every single bit of energy in the room. And there's people that come into a room and they light it up. And when you go into a yoga class, there's always that person that comes next to you and they're like, they're so loud and noisy and you're like, oh my God, this is stressful. I'm supposed to be rushing to yoga, right? Instead of, can I be the person that brings the peace? Can I be the person that says, you know what? Sounds like you're having a hard day setting up your mat. Let me, you go sit there for a second and I'll roll it out for you and get your blocks, right? To be that person to really serve others is going to make the crazy of this world far calmer. And the last thing I want to close with is someone's in the room is going to say, I'm doing all this, but my spouse isn't doing this. My friend's not doing this. If I were doing this, Judaism says something very important. We change the world in ones and twos, not twos and threes. I love this teaching from the Talmud. The essence of that teaching is we change the world by focusing first on ourselves and changing us. And that takes one. We don't change the world by saying, everyone, come do this with me. Be like me. Meditate with me. Right? That's twos and threes. We change the world because we do it. And when we do, the world becomes a safer, calmer, quieter place. And then as crazy as it gets out there, we have all the tools and the resources at our disposal to take on whatever comes our way. And we have friends that will take us with the journey. But what if you... I'm not going to say master, but you are successful at a number of these items. And yet there's somebody who's close to you, who you feel very close to, that you feel is not. And it really bothers you. I mean, a good example is unplugged. Right. You know, if there's somebody who can't even look you in the face, and they're only looking at their cell phone all day. <laughs> you know, I'm not exaggerating. All day looking at the cell phone. There's somebody who's close to you. Is it, is there so, so there's a new situation, if you look at neuroscience, there's a new category of people getting divorced, and it's because they're having affairs with social media. Not they've had an affair in social media, they're having affairs with social media, which means that at the time in bed, when you would typically be talking, interacting, one person's on a computer and the other person's on a screen, and you're actually not, so parriages are falling apart because of the distraction of that. And what I say to that, it's very tempting to fall into that. And so what I often say to people is you can't change another, but you can be curious 
as to why. So you can say, you know, I'm curious as to why you're using your phone right now because I miss you and I want to be with you. Oh, wait, I, I was using your spouse. If it's not your spouse, you know, I'm curious why you're looking at your phone because this is an opportunity for us to interact face to face and I'm enjoying your company, right? To be curious as opposed to accusatory can change it, but know that that's a real problem that we're facing and our children are facing. And you can't imagine divorce lawyers have come up with like this new category of which people are like, she's having an affair with social media. And they're like, wait, I missed it. Are they having an affair? And the, but it's actually, an, it, it is a tremendous distraction. So thank you. I'm going to take one other question, and then i got to go. One other. This was kind of a packed day of teaching. One other question. Did someone have? I thought I saw one hand go up. Um, so here's what I'll just close with. I want to first thank you so much for coming and learning Torah in the middle of an afternoon on a Sunday. I want to also thank you for staying in it, especially during the active listening, because it was hard. It's really hard, and you guys were no different from any other group. It's hard for me, and I practice it every day, and I teach it. The third thing I want to say is please just take home one. Take home one tool, make a change. Let it, let it permeate your soul. Let yourself grow from it. And if anybody in the room thinks they're done growing, please, you're not done until you're six feet under. And on that day, who knows what happens, but may you grow and may your soul grow to that very moment. And I'm so delighted that you're here and that you're learning. And I'm actually speaking to the preaching to the converted because if you're here, you already are growing. So you're already 99% of the way there. Thank you. This is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community Indeed, all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.